0: welcome to the summit for wellness podcast where we help you climb to the peak of your health and now here is your host brian carroll Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Summit for Wellness podcast and welcome to 2018. We have arrived in this new year. So my question to you is, have you set some health and wellness goals for 2018? Typically at the beginning of every year, many people start off the year with some resolutions and hopefully people continue with their resolutions all the way through the year. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to wait until the first of the year to start on your health and wellness journey, but it does provide a great opportunity to get started in the right direction by starting on your journey on the first day of the new year. So if you're on that health and wellness journey, congrats to you. I hope you keep it up and I would love to see some of you transform your lives in a nice, healthy way this year. Now, I know there are a lot of people that rely on content from various websites and from various professionals to help guide their own journey, which is why in this new year we are working on providing a lot of different content options for people to be able to learn more about health and wellness and how to transform their lives. So we're going to be putting out educational videos and courses and different programs and all sorts of stuff that people have been asking us to put out. And if you have any suggestions that you would like to see, we would love to hear about it too. So we've created a little survey. If you go to summitforwellness.com slash survey, we have a very short survey you can fill out to just let us know what, what it is you want to learn more about in 2018. What do you want to see more from us? Do you want to see videos? Do you want more blog posts? Do you want more podcasts? We rely heavily on your needs to be able to provide the information that you're looking for. And we want to make our business something that can help you on your own health and wellness journey from here on out. So we really rely heavily on that feedback. So with the episode today, my guest Amy Berger and I talk about two different health topics. We talk about Alzheimer's and the keto diet, and the keto diet is very popular right now. So the way that she's been able to integrate the keto diet with Alzheimer's and use that as a therapeutic approach to changing the way the body uses glucose and ketones as fuel and to help the brain get away from the insulin resistance that's found a lot within uh, people suffering from Alzheimer's has been just a fascinating approach. And she has written a book all about this that goes into a lot of detail about how this works and why it's working so well, and that's called The Alzheimer's Antidote, which can be found on Amazon, and I highly recommend it, especially if you like to nerd out and learn how the body works on a much deeper level. She does a very good job of breaking things down in a way that's still understandable, but shows you just a complexity of how the body works. So let's go ahead and go right into the interview. Amy Berger is a certified nutrition specialist and nutritional therapy practitioner who specializes in using low-carbohydrate nutrition to help people reclaim their vitality through eating delicious foods and showing them that getting and staying well don't require starvation, deprivation, or living at the gym. Her motto is, real people need real food. Thank you, Amy, for coming on to the show.
1: Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about two big topics in the health world, keto diets and Alzheimer's. And your book that you released back in March, The Alzheimer's Antidote, does a really good job of blending these two topics together. So before we get too deep into the blend that you've shown, let's uh, talk a little bit about Alzheimer's since it's such a complicated disease that's uh, scientists haven't had that much luck with studying over all these years and now there's a lot of new stuff coming out especially with working with the keto diet so can you talk about what made you decide to start studying alternative ways to fight alzheimer's disease
1: yeah um i oddly enough i have no family history of alzheimer's so i really didn't have any personal experience with it but um uh, several years ago, I read Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And he has a chapter in there where he mentions a connection or a possible connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's disease. And it's the first place I ever heard about that connection. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. But not having had a family history of this or having a real, you know, huge interest in it. I kind of brushed it aside to the back of my mind, thinking, oh, you know, maybe someday I'll look into that. Someday later, I'll research it. And a couple of years after I read that book, I was in school for nutrition. And when it came time for me to pick a thesis topic, like something to to research, I said, you know, I'm going to go back to that Alzheimer's thing and see if there's even enough scientific literature on that topic that I could write a thesis on it. Like, is there even enough research on insulin and glucose and Alzheimer's for me to even write. And when I just did the initial searching, like just, you know, looking online for for journal articles or publications that, that would have supporting information, I was just like stunned by what I found. It's everywhere. There is so much of it. You, you have to intentionally be ignoring it to not see all of this information. So, um, I, I, end up, I ended up doing my thesis on this topic, on, on Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes and the potential therapeutic use of a low-carb ketogenic diet for this condition. And then after I was done with school, I couldn't imagine keeping it to myself. I mean, I truly felt like this was potentially life-saving and life-changing information, and so I turned it into a book, and I was lucky enough that a publisher expressed interest in it, and so now it's a book. But um, that's how it happened was just there's there's this potentially very very helpful strategy for this condition that at the time anyway very few people were talking about there's a couple more books now besides just mine but um i just felt like i had to get this information to the people who need it the most which is the loved ones and caregivers of people with this illness
0: how long ago were you working on your thesis
1: Uh, I finished that in 2012. And my my book didn't come out until 2017, though. But I didn't really try to do anything with it until, I don't know, 2014 or so. I initially released it as a PDF as a little ebook on my own website. But then I found, um, you know, a quote unquote, real publisher that turned it into a, a physical book that you can get on Amazon and all that.
0: So it's been a relatively recent in the last five years since you were looking into a lot of these uh, studies that were coming out about the ketogenic diet with al- Alzheimer's.
1: Yeah, I have to say, though, I mean, I, I was new to researching it as a nutritionist and as a writer, but certainly the research itself goes way back, you know, goes much further back than just five years. Um, they've they've known about this glucose and insulin problem in the brain for decades i mean not not for like 50 or 60 years but but at least since the 90s some of these papers go back at least to the mid-1990s um and you'll still you'll still hear people say like it's you know alzheimer's is a total mystery we have no idea what's going on and that's just not true and it hasn't been true for 30 years
0: so if, if it's a glucose and insulin issue, what are some of the traditional approaches that doctors and scientists have been using to try and treat Alzheimer's? And obviously, it hasn't been working out that well. So at some point, as you found, we needed to, to make a change.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the traditional approach is that there is no approach. I mean, that's the sad truth is that going by the conventional model there's nothing that we can do about this condition because they don't know what's causing it. They don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to slow it down. They don't know how to stop it. So the standard of care is that there is no standard of care. The standard of care is, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, you have this disease, get your affairs in order, get your finances in order, figure out a long-term care plan because you're gonna need it. Like that's the state of affairs right now. Um, So I think the traditional approach really is that doesn't matter what you eat, doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter what you do. Here are this, you know, this this handful of medication that are completely ineffective. We'll give you an Amenda, we'll give you Aricept, we'll give you some of these drugs that do almost nothing to stop or slow the progression of this disease. So it's very, very sad because, you know, it's not that doctors don't care, it's just that so far none of these interventions have really done anything. Um, and so that's that's why we need something else. And I, I don't think anyone could deny that we need something else because what we've been doing so far is not working.
0: And that's why there's so much research into it to try to figure out whether this is a genetic issue or if there's other factors that are involved. So since you mentioned uh, insulin and glucose, can you talk about how that would impact the development of Alzheimer's?
1: Yeah, so Alzheimer's disease is... I mentioned earlier, they actually refer to it as type three diabetes, diabetes of the brain or brain insulin resistance. All three of those phrases can be found in the medical journals and in the scientific papers on this illness. And so right away, if we know nothing else about Alzheimer's, we know that there's at least some kind of connection with glucose and or insulin. And the reason they call it type three diabetes is so, I like to say that Alzheimer's disease is a metabolic problem, and by metabolic I mean it has to do with the way the brain gets energy. And um, the major crisis going wrong in an Alzheimer's brain is that the neurons in affected regions of the brain have lost the ability to get energy from glucose. So they're basically starving to death. I mean I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but the the gist of it is that these cells wither and shrivel up and they atrophy because they are Losing energy, they're essentially starving, and um, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, nobody wakes up all of a sudden with severe Alzheimer's disease. This this is happening to people in their fifties and sixties, and it gets worse and worse over time. You know, this this no longer strikes exclusively people in their eighties and nineties, like it, we it used, we used to call it senile dementia. Senile meaning older, but this is happening to people now not only in midlife, but they can actually measure this decrease in the brain's metabolism of glucose in people as young as their 30s and 40s. So that's when this starts. Except when somebody is that young, they're not showing any signs and symptoms. They're still totally normal. They don't have any brain fog. There's no quote-unquote senior moments. They're doing fine. But over time, as this problem gets worse and worse, eventually you reach a tipping point where the brain is no longer able to compensate. That's when you start showing the signs and symptoms. That's when you start becoming forgetful, misplacing things. But when those signs and symptoms appear, it's pretty late in the game. The disease process has already been going on for years. So um, it's, 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 when you think of it being an energy crisis in the brain, You know, when you're, when you're tired, when you just don't get enough sleep, you get clumsy, right? You make mistakes you don't normally make. You get slow and sluggish. Well, what do we think happens to our brain when the brain doesn't get enough energy? Same thing. It gets slow. It makes mistakes it doesn't normally make. It gets klutzy. And the brain is a an extremely energy-hungry organ. I mean, the brain uses between 20 and 25% of all the, the glucose and all the oxygen in your body. So any sort of interruption in the fuel supply to the brain and alzheimer's is basically a a fuel shortage in the brain anything that causes that is going to have you know very bad implications for for cognitive function which is exactly what we see in alzheimer's
0: so some people might be hearing that it's it's an issue with getting glucose into the brain cells and with our diet that most of us eat now the standard american diet that's full of sugar and carbohydrates why wouldn't we be getting enough glucose into the cells in order to function properly?
1: That is a really good question. And you're like one of the only people that's ever asked it in that way. And it's a great question because someone, someone did once ask me, is the problem that the brain isn't getting enough glucose or is the glucose getting into the brain and the brain is just not able to use it? And it's so is the is it like a supply problem or a demand problem? And at first, they it, they haven't established for certain what what the process is. But it seems like at first, it's a demand problem, meaning that the the brain is not using glucose. Like the glucose is getting into the brain just fine. The brain is taking it up. It's just not being metabolized. It's not being burned. And so when the brain over time does not burn this glucose and it doesn't use it, then there's no need to keep sending glucose into the brain. So over time, then it becomes a supply problem. Like it's not even getting into the brain as much as it needs to. Um, And I think part of this is actually, it's kind of a protective mechanism and it's, it's kind of complicated. So I'll try to keep it simple, but there are certain processes that we see in Alzheimer's disease that seem pathological, they seem like they're contributing to the disease process. One of them is, is the buildup of something called beta amyloid, these amyloid plaques that you always hear about if you read about Alzheimer's disease. One of the things these amyloid proteins do is inhibit or reduce glucose metabolism in the brain. So, oh wow, no wonder, no wonder those amyloid proteins are a problem. If they're interfering with, with glucose use in the brain, and low glucose use in the brain is is at the heart of this illness, then it makes sense that maybe these amyloid proteins are causing the problem. But the amyloid proteins kind of build up also late in the disease process. They don't happen right at the beginning. Um, I think that these amyloid proteins are actually doing the brain a favor because when you're younger and healthier and your brain is using a lot of glucose and there's tons and tons of glucose getting into the brain and your brain is burning it. Glucose is kind of damaging. Um, I hate the word toxic because the brain does require some glucose, and, and the, the body in general requires some glucose. We always need some. But when we have a ton of it, too much, all the time, it is very damaging. Um, it, 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 the burning of glucose causes a lot of oxidative stress. It causes what we call glycation, which is where like everything just gets sticky and gunked up with sugar. So if we can think of it like the brain is actually starting to get somewhat damaged by the constant influx of glucose and the constant burning of glucose, then as a protective step, the brain is downregulating or sort of reducing its own glucose usage. And so it makes perfect sense, like, oh my gosh, I'm so damaged from all this glucose, I'm going to take measures to protect myself against more damage from more glucose. And this would actually be totally fine. This would not be a problem at all if there were some alternative fuel available to the brain. But in people consuming a normal type Western or industrial diet, which is typically very high in carbohydrate, there's no alternative fuel available. And the end result is that these neurons, you know, wither in atrophy and die.
0: That's a great segue into what would be another fuel source for the body, which is coming from a fat source like ketones. So can you talk about how your body can create ketones out of fat and how does that get into the brain cells?
1: Yeah, so um, if anyone listening has heard of a ketogenic diet or ketones or even just a low carb diet, um, when you eat very, very little carbohydrate, your body is forced to find a different main source of fuel. Um, now, like I said, you'll always use a little bit of glucose, but the body can make glucose out of many other starting compounds. So the fact that we need a little bit of glucose doesn't mean that we are required to eat a large amount of carbohydrate. Like you can make glucose out of other things. You don't have to eat bread. You don't have to eat pasta to get this glucose. So... When you go very, very low carb in your diet, your body has to transition to using some other fuel because there's just not enough carbohydrate to go around. And it the main fuel it will switch to using is fat. Whether that's your own stored body fat or the fat in your foods, your body will switch to mainly being fueled by fat. And a byproduct of being fueled by fat is this other molecule called ketones. And most of the body can run on glucose or fats or ketones. But there are some, um, some tissues that don't run that well on fats. They, they do better with ketones and the brain is one of them. Um, so when you're on a very low carb diet, your muscles, like the bigger, you know, most of the rest of your body will run on fat primarily and a little bit of glucose. And it spares all of those ketones that are being made for the brain and for other tissues that maybe can't use fats. Um, so that's, that's basically the way to, uh, to get ketones made. And I, I don't know if, if, if I'm getting ahead of myself, if I talk about why it's so important to make ketones, if you have Alzheimer's disease, go for it. So, (laughs) all right. So, um, the, the beautiful thing about a ketogenic diet or, or some other method of making ketones, and maybe we can talk about that in a bit. But the beauty of having ketones in your body when you have Alzheimer's disease or some other form of cognitive decline or impairment is that even though these cells have lost the ability to use glucose efficiently, they still take up and use ketones. It's really fascinating. Now, an an older person who has very severe dementia, their brain is not going to take up and use ketones as well as someone who's young and healthy, but they do still take them up and use them. And they've shown this in human studies with humans with Alzheimer's. Like, Thank goodness this isn't a time where we have to rely on mouse studies and petri dish studies, and all that work has been done too. I mean, that stuff underlies and supports the human studies, but they have shown this. In people with Alzheimer's and the precursor, which is called mild cognitive impairment, when you get these people's ketone levels elevated, they have better cognition.
0: That's really fascinating, actually, that even though you can't get glucose into the cells, you can still get the ketones into the cells to provide that cognitive function. So you said As you start to age, it can become tougher and tougher to get the ketones in uh, coming from a higher carbohydrate type diet. So at what point would you start to apply the ketogenic diet to someone to try to reverse the effects of excess glucose in their system?
1: Um, I don't think it's ever too late. I mean, it does become harder. It's just like any any injury that you might have. If you're 85 years old and you slip and you break your leg, you're going to heal much, much more slowly than a 10-year-old child who breaks a leg. And so it's the same thing with the brain. Um, I don't think it's ever too late. It's just that it's it's going to take longer and you may not have as good results. So I think the time to intervene is as soon as you feel like there's a problem, the sooner the better. If you are in your 40s or 50s or 60s and you feel like you're having brain fog a lot of the time and you're starting to get very forgetful and if it's to the point where you've noticed it or your family members have noticed it, that's the time to intervene. You don't want to wait until, you know, until you're out of control of your own diet or your own life, because you're no longer able to care for yourself. Um, So now that being said, though, I don't think a strict ketogenic, a strict, very low carb diet is essential for everybody across the board. I think if you're having cognitive problems, it's definitely something worth trying. But in terms of Preventing this or potentially preventing it. And I say potentially because we don't know for sure that we can prevent it. I I believe that we can, but I, I can't say that for sure. Um, with an eye toward whatever we can do to possibly prevent this, I don't think a ketogenic diet is required. Because if you look around the world, whether it's historically or even currently, there's people all over the world who live, you know, healthily and and, and they're fit and they're robust and they're mentally sharp into old age who are not on ketogenic diets. I mean, clearly a ketogenic diet is not the only way to be healthy. It's not the only way to be mentally sharp. Um, so I think what is required to prevent this is staying within your own individual level of carbohydrate tolerance. And for some people, they might have to stay under 50 or 40 grams of carbs a day, which is really Not that much, you know, one bagel puts you over 40 grams, like you might have to just get your carbs exclusively from vegetables. There's other people, especially if they're more athletic, if they carry a lot of muscle mass who might be more insulin sensitive, who can eat 150, 200 grams of carbs a day and they're fine. So I don't think like a ketogenic diet is required but it is required that you sort of keep your glucose and insulin levels in a healthy range.
0: Do you think the ketogenic diet is a better option for all of us in America that have a super high carbohydrate type um, standard diet to be able to go to the opposite of extreme of that to get more fat sources into the body to it? break down the fats into ketones to be able to utilize that, whereas a lot of other cultures around the world have a more balanced type of diet, and they're able to switch over between fat burning and glucose burning and have that those ebbs and flows within their body that we don't necessarily have here?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think that depending on how sort of metabolically derailed somebody is, depending on how far away they are from being healthier, being optimally healthy, however we might define that, you know, the further away someone is from that, the more drastic an intervention I think they would need. So like if someone is type 2 diabetic, maybe is uh, morbidly obese, has PCOS, if you have some known condition that is coming from chronically high insulin, then yes, a very low-carb diet or ketogenic diet is probably the best thing to do, at least for some period of time. Um, Even for the people that have that kind of metabolic damage, they might not have to stay ketogenic for their whole life. Like if you look at the Atkins diet, you know, sort of the one of the original low-carb diets, you know, the, the first the first part of the Atkins diet is called induction, and it's two weeks. It's only two weeks of a ketogenic level of carbohydrate under 20 grams. After that, he had a strategy whereby you very gradually over time, reintroduce small amounts of carbohydrate. Um, So it may be that some people do have to stay very, very low carb for their entire life. But I think, you know, like you were saying, like, like we in the US, we have such a sort of crazy diet compared to what Human physiology is is expecting, so to speak, or for what our bodies are designed to like thrive on. Our our diet is so far from that that I do think a lot of us need something extreme to to bring balance back. Like you have to to go from an unbalanced diet to a better state of health, you need unbalanced in the opposite direction, at least for some some time frame, and then you may get to a point where you can sort of gradually go back to a more normalized diet, which may mean that you're not going to be eating all kinds of sugary cereal and and cakes and all kinds of junk all the time, but maybe that allows you to eat things like beets and sweet potatoes and parsnips and these sort of starchy carbohydrates that are still wholesome foods and they're still nutrient-rich foods. Um, They're just not as as low in carbohydrate. I think somebody, if somebody grows up like they do in, in certain other countries or even in, in, in America, if your parents know what they're doing nutrition wise, if you grow up with a very healthy metabolism and you never, I, I, I'm going to use words I don't like just to keep things simple. Like if you never get broken, you don't have to repair yourself. So if you're not broken, you don't need a diet to fix you. If you are broken, however, we might define that. If you're very far from from feeling as well as you think you could feel, then you probably do need something that's sort of unbalanced in the opposite direction.
0: Now, when you put people on a ketogenic diet and it works very well for them, do you keep them on the ketogenic diet as long as they're doing well on it, or do you cycle them on and off of it? So it might be a couple months on a ketogenic diet, then you'll cycle them back off and then bring them back on? Or how do you apply the ketogenic diet?
1: It it sort of depends on what they want to do. Some people are perfectly happy staying ketogenic all the time. They just have no desire to even eat, you know, a non-keto brownie or cookie. Or You know, you can make those things out of like almond flour and coconut flour. You can make sort of keto and low-carb substitutes for just about any food out there that you enjoy. So some people really like that way of eating and that's fine. There's other people who do miss those kinds of things and and who want to have a slightly more liberal diet. And it it just depends. It depends on their situation, their state of health. Um, Some people, you know, not really truly, not everybody needs to be ketogenic. And maybe that's like shocking to say, but honestly, the, the ketogenic diet is a very, very helpful, very effective intervention but that doesn't mean that everybody everywhere needs to be in ketosis all the time. I think there's people that for, for various reasons, they could just be more, more metabolically flexible. They're able to have, let's say, you know, once a month, it's, it's wings and beer night with the guys, or like, you know, once every two weeks, you go out with the families to the Mexican restaurant and you eat the beans and you eat the rice and the chips and it's no big deal. Um, there are some people who, for psychological reasons mostly like they can't have a meal like that every now and then because that one meal sends them off the rails and then before they know it six months have passed and they've regained 30 pounds their acne is back their pcos is back um so it really is individual it depends on what the individual is you know best suited for whether it's physically or psychologically um And I do get, I actually get clients coming to me who are on a ketogenic diet who I recommend more carbs for because they're just not doing well. Um, And it's, you know, that happens for various reasons. But like I said, not everybody needs to be keto. And in those people, it's not like I recommend that they go back to, you know, donuts and and cookies and ice cream, but it may be that they, you know, are able to do beans, fruit, you know, again, more of these like nutrient rich, they're still whole foods. They're still unprocessed foods. They're just slightly higher in carbs.
0: Now, there's a couple questions that a lot of people ask when they hear about high-fat diets. The first one being, eating a lot of fat, doesn't that make you fat? And the second one being, what about all that cholesterol that I'm ingesting? Isn't that bad for my body, my heart, etc.? So can you talk about um, how a high-fat diet might not necessarily make you fat and what the importance of cholesterol is within the body?
1: Yeah, so a high... high when you eat, it's fine to eat a lot of fat as long as you keep the carbs low. What you can't do is do both. You can't do a high-carb, high-fat diet. Or you can, you're just not going to like the results. <laughs> you're going to be very unhappy with what happens to you. Um, so if you're looking to lose fat, it's totally fine to eat fat. But I would say the even more important part of that equation is to keep the carbs low. And then the fat sort of takes care of itself. Um, with regard to... Cholesterol. I mean, if, if the listeners take nothing else away from this entire episode, except what I'm about to say right now, let this be the thing. The amount of cholesterol that you eat in your food has almost no effect on the amount of cholesterol in your bloodstream. And they've known this for decades. That's not news. That's not earth shattering. They've known that almost forever. Um, There is an effect in some people with the amount of fat in the diet. For some people, if you eat a lot of saturated fat, your cholesterol might go up. But in in human health, and especially in Alzheimer's disease or anything to do with a decline in cognitive function, cholesterol is like the brain's best friend. The brain is built out of fat and cholesterol. About 25% of, of all your body's cholesterol is in your brain. It is extremely important for cognitive function. I mean, when I was a kid, eggs were considered brain food because of the cholesterol. And then there was that whole scare about egg yolks and cholesterol, and everybody was doing egg white omelets. I mean, you... I just can't stress enough the importance of cholesterol for healthy brain function. And and it's not even enough to just eat more cholesterol-rich foods, although that's important. I mean, that's a place to start. But if people, um, especially our elders, so many of our elders are on cholesterol-lowering medication, especially the statins, and I'm not completely anti-medication, there may be an appropriate time and place for those medications, but for most people... Um, statin drugs are just not, they're a nightmare for healthy brain function, period. Like you, if you go on the FDA's website and the Mayo Clinic's website, they state very, very clearly that memory loss and and cognitive impairment are side effects of these drugs. And that's why, because cholesterol is so important for the the physical structure of the brain. And, And they even specify on those websites that those problems, the brain fog and the forgetfulness and all that, go away when the, when the medication is no longer being taken. But how often do doctors tell their patients to stop taking that statin? Um, we've, just, we've just gotten this whole cholesterol thing completely backward. Um, it's just, it, it's not the case that high cholesterol causes heart attacks or heart disease. People that have heart disease or who, who experience heart attacks run the gamut from high cholesterol to low cholesterol and everything in between. So, you know, if you're on a statin because your doctor is concerned about your total cholesterol levels, well, having lower cholesterol absolutely positively does not guarantee you freedom from heart disease or heart attack, period. And it certainly not only doesn't guarantee you freedom from cognitive decline, I I think it actually contributes to it. Your, Your brain just requires cholesterol, end of story.
0: Is there any studies showing the correlation between taking a statin and your risk factor for developing Alzheimer's?
1: You know, I don't know offhand if they've looked directly at that, like if they've done any cohorts where, you know, put these people on a statin and keep these people off a statin and see how many of them develop dementia. What they have done is um, some epidemiological studies, which are not all that great. I mean, epidemiology is where they sort of just observe a population and try to make inferences and best educated guesses about connections between medication and diet and behavior and certain health outcomes. And so, I mean, the evidence is not like ironclad there, but in general, older people with higher cholesterol have better cognitive function. They have a lower risk for dementia, lower risk for cognitive uh, decline, um, in general, they have a lower risk for all cause mortality too, which I mean, granted, like everybody's risk for mortality is a hundred percent. Like it always kills me when they say in studies, you know, Oh, t- 20% lower risk of death or whatever. Like we have to be careful with the way we say things because everybody's risk for mortality is a hundred percent. But when they say that, like, their, their, you know, risk of all-cause mortality is lower. It just means that at any given point, their risk of dying from anything other than old age is less. Um, so, and that's, that's, again, with higher cholesterol, including LDL, which is the quote-unquote bad cholesterol, even though that's a total misnomer. And so, I, I do know, so again, like, I'm not sure about the actual studies looking at people on statins versus people not taking statins, but I do know Dr. Dale Bredesen, who recently came out with his own book called The End of Alzheimer's, um, he gets patients off statins. He does not like to have the patients on statins because he knows that it interferes with healthy cognition.
0: Interesting. Now we've talked a lot about fat, we've talked a lot about carbohydrates. Does protein have a role with uh, Alzheimer's at all or is protein not really a factor?
1: Oh, another good question. Um, You're good, Brian. Um, Protein, it's hard to say because if somebody is following a strict ketogenic diet and if they need, like I I mentioned before that not everybody needs to be in ketosis, but if you have a medical condition where you do require actually being in ketosis versus just being lowish carb, then you do have to watch your protein intake a little bit. You can't eat a ton of protein because it will prevent you from developing very, very elevated ketones. But that being said, most older people, and I keep saying older people because we're talking about Alzheimer's, so it is, you know, mostly, you know, middle-aged and, and, and older people, a lot of that population is actually not getting enough protein. So um, there's a lot of people doing ketogenic diets that sort of worry about getting too much protein. And in the older population, I would be concerned where they're, they're actually getting too little.
0: Uh, do you have a percentage of uh, protein that you would try and keep the diet within?
1: It's not so much a percentage as absolute grams, and I try to base that on somebody's uh, – either their body weight or their ideal body weight. So like if somebody weighs 250 pounds but sort of their goal weight or maybe their ideal weight is like 170, then they can base that on 170. So I don't, I don't like to do the percentages because I just think – people end up not eating enough protein that way. Because if if you think on a ketogenic diet, you know, you should, quote unquote, should be around 70 to 80% fat. And, you know, let's say no more than 10% carbs, people tend to be at like 15% protein. And I just find for a lot of people, that's too low.
0: Going back to the fat, is there specific types of fat that you prefer over others? And are there specific types of fats that break down into ketones faster than other fats?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, with a ketogenic diet, I mean, the single most important thing to do is to keep carbs very low. The fat quality and the types of fat is kind of a secondary issue. But once you've sort of mastered keeping the carbs low, then you you do kind of want to give some attention to the the types of fat that you're eating. And the ones you want to stay away from, you don't have to eliminate them completely, but the ones you sort of want to go low on are the vegetable and seed oils. So like all of these polyunsaturated liquid oils, soybean oil, corn oil, um, cottonseed oil, peanut oil, um, canola, eh. There's been some stuff on canola lately connected to Alzheimer's that I I think the science is very sketchy there. I'm not concerned about it, but, you know, there's there's really no reason to use canola anyway. You can use olive oil, you can use coconut oil, and, of course, I mean, the animal fats are are very good for us, especially if you can afford to get grass-fed, you know, animal products and and the fats from grass-fed animals. So that would be things like beef tallow, lard, um, butter, ghee, bacon fat—even if you have like a good quality bacon, you can save the fat to cook greens with. Um, as for, so I'll, I'll get to the which ones help the ketones more in a second. But I, I do want to stress—I mean, it's it's okay to eat small amounts of of things like soybean oil and, and canola and all that because it's it's pretty hard to avoid them hundred percent. I mean, it can be done, but I just don't think it's necessary if. For most people, the vast majority of those fats that we eat come from processed foods. They're in crackers and cookies and baked goods and you know, store-bought margarines and all that. And when you eliminate that from your diet because you're not eating that stuff anyway, then your consumption of those kind of fats goes down by default. Like you don't even have to try, it just happens just because of the change in your diet. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're going to buy a store-bought blue cheese dressing or ranch dressing, you know, 99% chance that's going to have soybean oil in it. And that's okay. Like, I don't want people to make themselves crazy because it's hard enough sometimes for people to make this change in their diet, just to do low carb. And so if you then tell them that they have to change everything, they have to change every single thing that they're used to buying, they're not allowed to buy anymore. It's, it's one more level of difficulty that stops people from doing this. So, um... I think you wanna go easy on those fats. You don't have to eliminate them altogether. And then as for specific fats that really, really help the brain because they convert more easily into ketones, I mean, that's definitely gonna be the fats that are high in medium chain fatty acids. So the the best source that's, that's out there is coconut oil. They sell actually now medium chain triglyceride oil, MCT oil, you can buy it at a health food store or online. Um, I just think coconut oil is much more economical, even like the organic, you know, unrefined, fancy schmancy coconut oil is actually still pretty reasonably priced. And um, I just if you don't like the taste of coconut oil or the smell, you can get the refined coconut oil and it still has the same benefits. You'll still get the same ketogenic benefits. It just doesn't taste or smell like coconut.
0: Is coconut the only source of fat that contains medium chain triglycerides or are there other fat sources that also contain MCTs?
1: Coconut oil is a really good source. MCT oil is a good source. Um, goat fat, believe it or not, like caprylic and capric acid, those are medium chain fats. So, if you do goat dare, goat cheese, they even make, um, there's a company that makes goat ghee now. Um, I think Roquefort cheese actually is also a good source of it, like some, some of the blue cheeses. And that, that may depend on what the, it may depend to some extent on what the animals were eating, but some blue cheeses are a good source of MCTs.
0: Now, one area that we know plays a huge factor in how our body processes uh, glucose and metabolizes food is stress on the body. So does it matter what we do to our diet if we continue to be and live a really high stressful life?
1: Um, so... Stress will definitely impact the results you'll get from pretty much any diet. Um, I think that for the metabolic changes we're looking for with a low-carb or ketogenic diet, you're going to get most of the way. Like, you will get a certain degree of results just by staying very low-carb and eating good quality fats and proteins. But... If you are like a major stress ball and you're especially if you're not sleeping enough, if, if your whole life is just stress, you're not going to get as good results as you would get if you were more relaxed and more calm and sleeping more. And part of that has to do with interfering with healthy regulation, like the way your body handles and processes glucose and insulin. Um, when you're stressed out, it tends to keep your blood sugar higher. And if your blood sugar is higher, your insulin's going to be higher. So it's kind of this big, like self-fulfilling prophecy, like a big vicious cycle that, um, I think if you are a very, very stressed out person, you're better off doing a low carb diet and being stressed out than not doing a low carb diet and being stressed out. But you're, you're not going to get the optimal results that you might get if you also, you know, made efforts toward managing that stress and and distress could be anything i mean there's things that we don't consider to be stress that that they are stress stressors to the body and to the mind so it could be like i said not sleeping enough um too little and too much exercise you know just because some exercise is good doesn't mean more and more is better especially if you're not resting and recovering enough um, mental and emotional stress is, is another source, but there's just so many different things that keep us in that like fight or flight state that we don't even realize are, are doing it.
0: Do you have any good tests or ways to test um, to see your insulin levels or to measure your glucose levels to see if some of these uh, signs and symptoms are going to be or start becoming more present? And maybe you should be more aware of what it is you're eating and changing the way you eat?
1: Yeah, so the glucose, um, you know, you can get any of this tested at the doctor, but the glucose, you can actually buy like a handheld uh, glucose meter. You can get it at any corner drugstore. The meters are pretty cheap. Where they get you is the test strips. But once you start testing, you don't have to test all the time. You can sort of test for a couple of days or a couple of weeks and see where you are. And then, you know, you can change your diet accordingly. Unfortunately, with insulin, there's not any home testing device yet. And I say yet because I know there's got to be somebody working on it. It's a gazillion dollar idea. Everybody wants to test insulin at home. And I've I've been told that the reason that doesn't exist yet is just because the um the biochemical test required to actually do that is more more complicated than the one for glucose. So they can't fit it into this like baby sized meter. So you can just get it tested at the doctor's office. You just have to request a fasting insulin test. And it's, um, it's not a very common test. I think it should be, in my opinion, it should be made a standard part of routine blood work, just like your glucose is, just like your cholesterol is. Um, because you might even ask for it, your doctor will say, you mean glucose, right? You have to say, no, I mean insulin. You You have to specify because it's just, they're not used to people requesting it. And if your fasting insulin level is elevated, then you know for sure that you have a problem because your fasting level should be very low. But there might be some people out there who the fasting level is normal But after they eat, particularly if they have a high carb diet, after they eat, their insulin is skyrocketing and it's staying high throughout most of the day. And it just so happens that by the time they wake up in the morning after being asleep and not eating for those hours, it comes back to normal. So if you have signs and symptoms of of chronically high insulin, even though your fasting level is normal, there there's some other tests you can do that are sort of more advanced, but You might as well just try a low carb diet and and those signs and symptoms of high insulin even if your glucose is normal i have to stress this because there's truly literally without exaggeration millions of people who have perfectly normal blood glucose because very high insulin is keeping that glucose in check so that stuff pcos gout hypertension abdominal obesity if you have high triglycerides and low hdl it's a dead giveaway that you have high insulin um skin tags um there's just just a lot of uh, I, I think i said hypertension i'm not sure high blood pressure that has almost nothing to do with how much salt or sodium you get in your diet and almost everything to do with your insulin levels so um i think i think a fasting insulin test is a place to start though cuz in most people that that do have an insulin problem that fasting level will be a little bit elevated
0: Sounds like having an insulin meter would be a multi-million-dollar idea to be able to track that throughout the day, just like you would your glucose levels.
1: Oh, it's zillions! If I knew anything <laughs> about the science, like like I've had to develop that technology, I do it because it's it is definitely a gold mine idea, and I, I guarantee there's there's people working on it now. I just have no uh, no sense of when that might be available to the public.
0: Well, thank you, Amy, so much for talking about uh, the ketogenic diet and Alzheimer's. I want to. Give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about your book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, Using Low-Carb, High-Fat Diet to Fight Alzheimer's Disease, Memory Loss, and Cognitive Decline. You released this back in March. Can you talk a little bit about your book?
1: Yeah, thank you. So um, the book the book has been out for a couple of months. It's available on Amazon, and uh, I think it's available in the UK. It may be available in Australia, and it's there's a Spanish-language version of it out, and I'm not sure where you can get it overseas I would check check amazon or check your local bookseller but um it's it's been very well received I mean the forward was written by dr Perlmutter who wrote grain brain which is just really really humbling and fabulous to have his support and his endorsement um so I, I the book is really the the first third maybe of the book or the first half is specific to Alzheimer's disease and why I recommend a low-carb diet like what's going wrong in the Alzheimer's brain, why and what to do about it. And then the second half of the book is partly how to actually do a ketogenic diet. What do you need to buy? What, what can you eat? What should you not eat? And there's, you know, part of that second half is me explaining why it's totally fine to do this. You know, isn't like, like the question you asked, what about all that fat? What about all that cholesterol? Um, so it's like, I, I wrote the book the way I did because you know, I'm gonna tell people that, that for the sake of their brain and their cognitive function, they should eat this low carb, high fat diet, but then I have to explain to them that it's okay. Like why, why is it safe? Is, is it okay to eat saturated fat? Is it okay to eat red meat? Um, so the book is like half an Alzheimer's book and half just a general how to do a low carb diet book. I mean, I should say too, like, like a couple of things we didn't really get to talk about here. I do talk about other lifestyle factors. It's not just diet that's contributing to this. I mean, it's diet. I have a chapter on sleep and stress. I have a chapter on fasting. I have a chapter on exercise. So there's other things going on. I mean, I don't want people to think this is solely a dietary illness. But what I will leave people with is that... Um, you know, when it comes to things like type two diabetes or heart disease, we we take it for granted that, that there's a role for diet and lifestyle, if not a primary role, right? These things are, they're driven by poor diet and lifestyle. Nobody even questions that, we take that as a fact. And yet when it comes to Alzheimer's, we just pretend to be clueless, like like oh, we have no idea what this is. You know where this is coming from. This couldn't possibly, Brian. This couldn't possibly be related to diet and lifestyle the same way all those other conditions are. Um, so that's that. I mean, I wrote the book to say that yes, this actually is a diet and lifestyle disease, and. Because of that, instead of being scared and fearful and feeling hopeless, we actually have reason to be really hopeful and to be positive because there is something we can actually do about this. We are not powerless. Um, And I I wrote this book to to empower the the loved ones and the caregivers and, and people afflicted with this condition.
0: Yeah, and there's so many factors, like you talked about, that goes into any kind of disease. And your book does a phenomenal job of laying out all those different factors and how to work through the different issues and be able to apply it to their life. And I think it's a phenomenal book. Very well done. Now, you also have your website where you... You blog quite a bit. You talk about a bunch of different health and nutrition-related topics such as insulin, metabolism, weight loss, thyroid function, and that as is at tuitnutrition.com. Can you talk about what tuit means?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's T-U-I-T, Tuit Nutrition. When I was a kid, my mom had this little round wooden coin-looking thing, and on one side it said T-U-I-T, and on the back... It had this little explanation that was, you know, everybody's always saying, oh, I'll do that when I get around to it. You know, I'll exercise when I get around to it. I'll, I'll do that when I get around to it. And so this was your round to it. And someone would give this to you and say, now you have a round to it. Now you have no excuse. So it's kind of, I don't know why I chose that as the name. I just was trying to come up with something catchy. And um, I think it fits though, because, you know, when are you going to get serious about your health? When are you going to get serious about what you eat? Oh, when I get to it. Well... Now you have to it. I am to it nutrition. I'm giving you to it. Now we can all get to it.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love the story behind it. It's so unique. Where else can people find you online?
1: Uh, so there is my blog to And I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is to it nutrition. And I, I do have a Facebook page, but I, I'm very, very rarely on Facebook. I, I, I don't know why, but I don't like Facebook, and I love Twitter, and I don't know what the psychology of that is. I would love if somebody could explain that, but I'm, I've am i just heard that from other introverts. I'm a huge introvert, and I've heard that we all don't like Facebook, but we like Twitter.
0: Well, maybe someone out there will be able to explain it a little bit deeper for you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Amy. This has been fantastic, and I can't wait to talk to you again.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: You too. There you have it, folks. There are ways to be able to help and support people that are suffering from Alzheimer's disease. If you know of anyone that is suffering from Alzheimer's and they aren't progressing with the treatment process that they are on, maybe you should look into the book The Alzheimer's Antidote and see if bringing them onto a ketogenic diet will be beneficial to them. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Those ratings and reviews do mean a whole lot to us. And we read every single one because they are so important. And it helps us to get out in front of more people. So if you can go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes, that'll take you right to the page to leave us a rating and review. And we will see everyone next time.